Welcome to the latest episode of The Quantitative Perspective, the podcast where we look at topics from around the world through a quantitative lens, dissecting the statistics, mathematics, and physics behind the headlines to bring a deeper and possibly alternative narrative to light. The podcast whose motto is, In God We Trust, All Others Must Bring Data. I am Kevin Oden, the podcast host, and in today's episode, we look at global warming through the lens of three numbers, 1.5, 41, and 1 billion. So let's get started with the story behind 1.5 and what that number means today. Our story starts in March 1994, when the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change was formed with the unwieldy acronym UNFCCC. But a noble mission to prevent, and I quote, dangerous, unquote, human interference with the climate system. Today, it has near universal membership with 197 countries ratifying that convention. And that group of countries that ratified the convention is called the Conference of Parties, with an equally bad acronym, COP. When the Conference of Parties, or COP, met for the 21st time in Paris on December 12, 2015, in what has been called COP21, the parties all reached a landmark agreement to combat climate change and to accelerate and intensify the actions and investments needed for a sustainable low-carbon future. This is the so-called Paris Agreement. The agreement built upon the convention and, for the first time, brought all nations into a common cause to undertake ambitious efforts to combat climate change, including enhanced support to assist developing countries to do so. As such, the agreement charted a new course in the global climate effort. So now we get to the 1.5. The Paris Agreement's central aim was to strengthen the global response to the threat of climate change by keeping a global temperature rise in this century well below 2 degrees Celsius, above pre-industrial levels. So basically, preventing a rise above 2 degrees Celsius, above pre-industrial levels. And even more importantly, and much more difficult to pursue, they looked for a way to further decrease that limit to 1.5 degrees Celsius. So to pursue efforts to limit the temperature increase even further to 1.5 degrees Celsius. That's the first of our three numbers. The other thing they did in the agreement is aim to increase the ability of countries to deal with the impacts of climate change. For example, the impact of drought, sea level changes, etc. by making finance flows consistent with low greenhouse gas emissions. To reach these ambitious goals, the agreement further sought the appropriate mobilization and provision of financial resources, a new technology framework, and enhanced capacity building to be put in place 
thus supporting action for these developing countries, which are, in most cases, the most vulnerable countries. Clearly a, no, a noble and ambitious goal. But these broad and ambitious objectives do come at a cost for the, for the developed countries as well as the, the developing countries. With the most ambitious objectives having a clear and disproportionate impact on the developing countries, where technology gaps make the investments necessary to meet these objectives more onerous on their populations. Adding to the challenges, there are those global warming skeptics out there, those who believe global warming is either a hoax or a predominantly natural event rather than mostly human-driven. To those skeptics, this would mean the cost of attempting to mitigate global warming would benefit none in the long run and in fact harm everyone and again hit the developing countries the hardest. In fact, one of the loudest arguments pursued by the skeptics is that climate scientists are, are really exaggerating global warming to get grants. Yes, to get grants. But from the quantitative perspective, quite honestly, the, the math doesn't add up. Grant growth in the environmental sciences has been practically zero between 1990 in 2018. With that kind of growth, zero growth, by now even the worst of climate scientists would have abandoned that strategy after seeing it continuously fail. If climate scientists desire more money, then they have many more attractive prospects in petroleum research or data science, where, job, where, where jobs are growing at 11% compared to 3% for environmental sciences. They would get paid 60 to 100,000 a year, which truly beats toiling six years for a PhD for 30,000 a year. Some, client, some climate scientists have already taken this path because of the better pay, as have other non-climate scientists as well looking for a paycheck. For example, there is the abundant yet debunked research by a well-known astrophysicist, Willie Soon, who proposed that sunspots, yes, sunspots, cause global warming. However, he failed to disclose the source of funding for nearly a dozen of his studies, in violation of the publisher's policies, in fact. He received about a million in funding over a period of 10 years from Exxon, the American Petroleum Industry, API, and Texaco. On the other hand, there is strong evidence that man-made global warming is a real and present danger. There is the large and reputable Union of Concerned Scientists, UCS. This group was founded in 1969 by scientists and students at MIT with the mission of directing scientific research toward solving pressing environmental and social problems. This renowned group of scientists collectively notes that over 200 years, humanity has powered itself with fossil fuels like oil and coal, and we've seen enormous amount of development and progress. That's all good. 
but it has come at an incredible cost. They go on to say, when burnt fossil fuels all release carbon dioxide, which acts like a blanket around the earth, as the amount of carbon dioxide increases, the planet warms up, sea levels rise, extreme weather becomes more commonplace, a whole range of impacts from wildfires to flooding to extreme heat and drought become more likely and more severe. The UCS further notes that scientists have taken detailed measurements of carbon dioxide levels since the late 1950s. They've also gathered in-depth records of past CO2 levels from sources like ice core studies. And what are those results? Those results show that carbon dioxide levels are higher today than at any point in at least 800,000 years. And it is clear it is due to the cars we drive, the fuel we burn for electricity and warmth, the food we eat or waste, and the forest we clear. Temperature trends from around the world reinforce these findings. Every one of the past 40 years has been warmer than the 20th century average. The 12 warmest years on record have all occurred since 1998. The five warmest were 2014 to 2018. We've already warmed the planet by one degree Celsius. So how do we combat that problem? One way to combat the problem of global warming is to maintain or increase carbon dioxide sinks, or simply carbon sinks. A carbon sink is any reservoir, natural or otherwise, that accumulates and stores some carbon-containing chemical compound for an indefinite period and thereby lowers the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere. Globally, the world's largest naturally occurring carbon sinks are vegetation, for instance, forests, plants, etc., and oceans. This leads us to our second number, 41. Yesterday, and nearly every day before that of my adult life, except Sundays, I went to the mailbox and threw away approximately half of my mail without opening it. That mail was comprised of misguided advertisements that I typically have told some company not to send me, or they sent it to current resident, a dead giveaway that is going in, going in the trash. The Sightline Institute estimates each American receives an average of 41 pounds of junk mail each year. Our second number, 41. New York University says 5.6 million tons of junk mail end up in American landfills every year, while treehugger.com claims junk mail's annual carbon contribution is equal to that of seven U.S. states combined. Now, of course, these stats all come from people who would like to see junk mail sent and tossed. So what do junk mail advocates say? Well, first of all, they don't call it junk mail. They call it direct mail or marketing mail. 
The Data and Marketing Association, or DMA, says American business sent 149 billion pieces of direct mail and nearly 10 billion catalogs in 2016 alone. And here's why. The DMA says that more than 5% of people respond to direct mail compared with less than 1% who respond to, to email pitches. Marketers know that that we, meaning me and you, have to sort it. We have to look through it, which means at the end of the day, when we look through it, we may actually like something that we see. The U.S. Postal Service says even millennials find marketing, marketing mail valuable. Three quarters of them, according to the U.S. Postal Service. With numbers like that, According to the DMA, the industry is not going to stop it without a lot of pushing from us. But let's get back to the impacts of 41 pounds per year per person on the global environment and global environmental health. All for a 5% hit rate. Yes, someone is bragging about a 5% hit rate. The UCS, remember we talked about them the Union of Concerned Scientists, Jean-Michel Cousteau's Ocean Futures Society, and 41pounds.org, three very reputable organizations, estimate the following statistics related to junk mail. First, more than 100 million trees are destroyed each year to produce junk mail. 42% of timber harvested nationwide becomes pulp wood for paper. Two, creating and shipping junk mail produces more greenhouse gas emissions than 9 million cars. Three, about 28 billion gallons of water are wasted to produce and recycle junk mail each year. Four, you waste about 70 hours a year dealing with junk mail. And five, 320 million of local taxes are spent to dispose of junk mail each year instead of providing parks, libraries, healthcare, and other valuable services. With these staggering statistics, the excuse that we are too inept or lazy to look at or for other more carbon-friendly mediums to receive or search out our consumer choices is a, is a very, weak, very weak excuse that we need to abandon to preserve the planet for all of us. Let me remind you that we bear the responsibilities about our personal consumption habits and for the advertising methods the companies we run utilize. We need to remind ourselves that companies are not some abstract concept that we have no control over. This narrative, this false narrative, allows us, the people that create and run these companies, to make decisions to the benefit of this abstract entity for the sake of short-term profits rather than the long-term benefit of humankind. And I will posit that the notion of company was created to efficiently organize the physical and intellectual output of humankind to the benefit of humankind, not its potential destruction. 
And let me state it now. I am a fervent capitalist. This is something very much in our control within a strong and a vibrant capitalist framework. We next discuss the last number in today's episode, 1 billion. To understand the importance of this number, we start with U.S. President Joe Biden's virtual climate summit that took place April 22nd and 23rd of this year. President Biden's action marked a needed return of the United States to the Paris Agreement and the U.S.'s rightful and needed global leadership role on climate change. But what made the summit unique beyond its virtual nature was the fact that each of the 40 invited world leaders would have nowhere to hide. They could not slink back in their chairs and listen to the measures others others would take, as each would be required to take a turn discussing the actions they would take to uphold the Paris Agreement. Unfortunately, it was Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro who nearly stole the show after solidifying his, or Brazil's, new position on global warming and its impact on Brazil. Andre Pagliarini, a lecturer on modern Latin American history at Dartmouth College, noted the following, and I quote, After more than two years denying that runaway deforestation in the Amazon is a real problem, the Brazilian government government now says it will protect the rainforest if the United States ponies up, unquote. So what does ponying up mean to Jair Bolsonaro? It was actually Wednesday on the eve of Joe Biden's virtual climate summit that President Jair Bolsonaro, Bolsonaro's environment minister tipped the country's cards and asserted that his country would cut deforestation by up to 40%. So for the years of his, of his presidency, there was no deforestation, but now um, we'll cut deforestation by up to four, 40% in one year in exchange for $1 billion, our third number. So in exchange for $1 billion for the international community, he would cut deforestation by up to 40%. Does that sound a little like international extortion? I'm not going to deny the extortion claim at the outset, but I will try to give Bolsonaro's negotiating point, to put it very kindly, an historical perspective. In fact, a quantitative perspective. Let's take the United States as the world's leading developed country. According to the United States Forestry Service in a 2002 report, prior to the arrival of European Americans, about one half of the United States land area was forest. Forest cover in the eastern United States reached its lowest point in roughly 1872, with about 48% compared to the amount of forest cover in 1620 with the majority of that deforestation taking place prior to 1910, during one of the most rapid growth periods in U.S. agriculture, national GDP, and a major growth in U.S. population. 
Then the forest resources of the United States remained relatively constant through, throughout the 20th century. Corroborating this analysis, the 2005 Global Forest Resources Assessment ranked the United States as the seventh highest country losing its old-growth forests, noting that the vast majority of which were removed prior to the 20th century, as we noted uh, in, in the prior report. But even more telling about the U.S. history is the long, sustained, and stable GDP per capita brought about by cheap energy resources and the availability of arable land. That's land that's, that's agricultural or crop producing. So the availability of arable land to feed that growing population. Essentially, so-called sustained growth came at a cost. However, we now realize in the developed world that that cost may have been too much and, in fact, is truly not sustainable. So what about the developing countries with their growing populations and their nascent and, in many cases, struggling economies? Many of them have staggering excesses of the old-style resources that made the U.S., and other developed countries, leaders on the world stage. Shouldn't they benefit from their timber, made into arable land for agriculture and paper products for consumption and export? Shouldn't they utilize cheap coal for fuel, for heating and cooling their people, and be allowed to produce beef with their, which their hungry populations can consume and export the excesses to European, Asian, and other beef-eating populations and the rest of the hungry world? In those questions lie the dilemma for the world. How do developing countries catch up without further aggravating a real and present problem? There is something to the general idea of rich countries paying developing ones to secure carbon sinks finance sustainable development, and deal with the effects of climate change given rich, rich countries' disproportionate contribution to the climate crisis and the benefits that they've accrued through, uh, through their deforestation and fossil fuel uses over the last 200 years. And certainly, ultimately, the solution would benefit all of us. However, as always, the answer is not quite so simple. In the case of Brazil, for example, it is not clear that any amount of money will compel Bolsonaro to confront the illicit logging interests and the rapacious cattle ranchers that drive deforestation today. As Norway's Minister of Climate and Environment recently noted, Decreasing, and I quote, decreasing for deforestation in the short term is a matter of political will, not a lack of advanced financing, unquote. For example, between 2008 and 2018, Norway poured $1.2 billion into the Amazon fund, which pays Brazil to protect the rainforest, with only increasing deforestation over that period of time, if not accelerating. 
The answer may ultimately come down to the international community applying much more of a carrot and stick approach. The, the carrot of global contributions and even assistance in developing more nuclear energy capacity and the stick of global sanctions when certain deforestation or other carbon neutral goals are not met. But this carrot and stick approach will only be effective if leadership in developed countries is credible with regard to their commitments. And this too requires discipline that we all, including the U.S., have not demonstrated consistently. As I noted earlier in this podcast, the U.S. and its citizens have failed to hold its companies and all of us accountable for the 41 pounds of junk mail each and every one of us receives each year. The equivalent of 9 million cars spewing carbon dioxide on the streets. And we still refuse to aggressively wean ourselves from our fossil fuel addiction. We, the developed world, must lead by example as one component of the carrot for the developing world and be willing to occasionally stick the rest of the world along when it backslides. I will admit the problems are not simple and the work is not easy, but the solutions must be found and the work accomplished. To quote Pope John Paul II, the earth will not continue to offer its harvest except with faithful stewardship. We cannot say we love the land and then take steps to destroy it for use by future generations. Unquote. In a nutshell, the earth is the one thing we all have in common. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Quantitative Perspective. Look for our next episode in a week's time.